This morning marks the beginning of the end of our study of 1 Thessalonians. As we approach the final verses of this great book this morning and Lord willing, next Lord's Day, I always have a uh, hesitancy, a trepidation about finishing a book. There's always more that could be said. You say, no, there's not. We've said so much through here, but there is. There's more that could be said. And, and I always wonder if uh, once we depart from the book, if we're going to remember the things that we studied, remember the things that we were digging through, and are we going to make wise application of these truths that we've been walking through? And many of you have given me words of encouragement over the last number of weeks that uh, this final section has been somewhat impactful for you as we've been walking through these commands that we've seen in, in the Scripture. And, and so I always wonder as we, we depart from a book and we start into a new one if, if we're, we're going to lose some of the impact as it were. Always a concern that we'll forget how the whole message of the book fits together because we're still sometimes lost in the, the details of the weeds. And I think that's some of what Paul's concern is as he finishes out this book and as he begins the, the final comments and what I've called here the final encouragements in this letter to the Thessalonians, this final description is really a literary conclusion to the letter that is quite intricate, quite detailed. I don't think any of us are nearly as so involved in how we end a letter because most of us don't even write letters today. Or even in an email, we, we never give thought to how we conclude an email today. We even have electronic signatures that just pop up. We just don't even think about it. We just end it. We're not very good at it. Paul is explicit in how he ends. He is very explicit here about how he wants you to think about everything he's said in the letter as he concludes this. If these Thessalonians had gotten lost in the minutiae of this letter, if they're still curious about the timing of the day of the Lord and the rapture, or if they're still wondering about how Paul is, is faring and how he's doing, if they have forgotten why he wrote this letter and what is the primary intention that Paul had, he makes sure they remember it here at the end. He is concerned here that his hearers do not remain hearers only but that they are actually doers of the word of God, doers of the instruction that he's given in this letter. All of the commands and the exhortations of this letter are actually summed up here in these final words so that Paul is saying, I want you to make sure you are living out and applying these truths. Now, I want to remind you, and I want you to walk back through just a little bit with me. Do you remember what the overall theme of this letter is and how we describe the theme of this letter? We indicated back in our opening overview of the entire letter back in mid-February of this year that the theme of the letter was grow in what you know. Grow in what you know. And we said the, the phrase, you know, it's really one word in the Greek New Testament, the word oida, is used 17 times in this book, throughout the book. And even further 
description is given of things they know. A number of times the apostle refers to teaching that they received when he was first with them, that they didn't need to rehash or they didn't need to know again, such as in chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, we told you this before, or chapter 4, verse 9, you have no need for anyone to write to you anything more. In other words, this congregation really knows a lot about the gospel. They know a lot about theology. They know a lot about the Christian faith. So what do they need to do with what they know? Well, if you remember chapter 3, verse 8, they need to stand firm in the Lord. Or chapter 3, verse 10, Paul is praying to see them complete what is lacking in their faith. Or chapter 3, verse 12, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. In chapter 4, verse 1, they are to excel still more. In chapter 4, verse 9 and verse 10, they don't need more instruction. They just need to excel still more. So they know a lot And over and over, he keeps telling them, what do you need to do with what you know? Excel. Grow. Grow in what you know. You don't need to shift emphases in your understanding of living out the Christian faith. You simply need to keep doing what you know to do. Emphasize the same things you have always been emphasizing, just more so and more practically and deeper and more intentionally and more aggressively find this to be a common occasion for many Christians. They get kind of caught up in the routine of the Christian life and it seems to generate what they would say is the doldrums or things are just kind of sailing along and it doesn't feel as exciting or ecstatic as perhaps it once did. And they think, what, what could really jazz up the Christian life for me? What could really help me do something more or make this more exciting or thrilling? The reality is you don't need a silver bullet You don't need something else other than what you have been taught. What you need is to take the truth that you probably know and know very well and grow deeper in it and grow more practical in it and grow wider in its application. You need to grow in what you know. I think that is a great message for us as a congregation here at Summit Woods. We give so much time and attention to teaching the Bible So much time and attention to studying the truths of the scripture, whether it's on a Lord's Day morning or you come back in the evening, you come here through the midweek or you're meeting with a men or women's group and you're studying through the text of scripture. We're always studying the word. How are you using it? What are you doing with it? How are you growing in its application? We don't need as a congregation to change our emphases. We don't need to be known for anything other than the essential priorities of the Christian faith. If anything needs to be different among us, it's likely just simply the intensity and the intentionality of which we are growing in the things that the Lord has taught us. So how are we going to continue to apply the message of 1 Thessalonians? How will we keep growing in what we already know so well in regard to gospel truth? Well, this final section contains Paul's final encouragement, and I think they are encouragements to help us continue to grow in gospel truth that we know. So how are we going to do it? 
beginning this morning and Lord willing, continuing and finalizing it next Lord's, week, Lord's Day, next week, we'll, we'll look at five different summary encouragements, five summary encouragements that help us to continue to grow in the gospel truth we already know. Just five summary encouragements. We're going to learn to pray with complete confidence, intercede for our leaders, express our fellowship, equip the whole congregation, and rely on grace. Those are the five. Did you get them? So come back next week and you'll get, the, get them. We're really just going to look at the very first one this week. And then we'll cover the, the remaining encouragements next Lord's Day. Five encouragements that help us grow in gospel truth we already know. The first one is this, to pray with complete confidence. I think this is a providential place to end this book and to end our year together with, just like we started our year talking about prayer and as we have discussed among us all year long about the subject of prayer, how to deepen our prayer, we end with a conversation about prayer. Pray with complete confidence. When you pray, do you find yourself praying with confidence? Do you find yourself praying with trepidation? Is this the way I should pray? Or do you find yourself sometimes worrying to God in prayer? Complaining to God? Which, yes, you'll find some of that in the Bible. But do you find that your prayers at least end with a note of complete confidence? When you're thinking about the other members of our church and you're thinking about some of the struggles that they have because you're involved with one another in, in each other's lives and you're thinking about some of the challenges that they have, how are you praying about them? Do you pray about those issues with complete confidence before the Lord? Or do you find yourself just simply complaining to God about others in prayer or worrying that they're making wrong decisions? What does your prayer life look like as you pray for other people? Well, think about what Paul's prayer life looks like. Because verses 23 and 24 are a prayer, aren't they? He's praying very specifically. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. That's incredible confidence, isn't it? That's incredible confidence that he's praying on behalf of these believers. And remember, he had only spent about three weeks at the most from what we can gather from the accounts three months of time with these Christians who were under intense persecution. Some of them challenged to walk away from the faith. But he prays not with doubt, but with absolute confidence about their eternal salvation in Christ. In fact, did you notice what concerns him most is just that, their faith their salvation. That's what he prays about and prays about with absolute confidence. It's a final prayer, a prayerful summary of all the main truths that you actually find in this book. 
It's a prayer for the Thessalonians to find complete application of all these truths. Now, again, it is a prayer. It's a prayer of completion. Do you see the words entirely, complete, without blame? Those are three terms used to express the main point of this prayer. May God completely complete his work in you without any lack. He's so redundant when he prays, isn't he? It's redundant because that's the heart of Paul's concern. May you be perfected in the perfect work of God. This is his burden for every member of the church in the Thessalonian congregation. Be finished. Be complete. Paul would say even to the Colossians that he works tirelessly, endlessly to the point of exhaustion to see that every single person is complete in Christ, Colossians 1, 28. But notice also about this prayer, it is a prayer for God to do only what God can do. You're not going to finish yourself. You are not going to bring yourself to completion. God must do this work. But he's praying for that. Think about this conundrum. God expects us to pray for future full sanctification and preservation, even though God's already promised it. We're praying for what God has already promised. Isn't that a good way to pray confidently? I mean, if he's promised, why not pray what he has promised? Now, let me ask you, do you live up to everything that he's promised? No. So there's still room for prayer for you, right? But he's guaranteed it. So pray that God does what he says he would do. You say, well, I, I, don't, know, I don't know why I would do that. I would just pray for what God's going to do anyway. Well, what else are you going to pray for? What else will consist your prayers? Things that God hasn't promised? Is that what you're going to worry about and complain about? Things that, that you have no control of and you have no confidence in? Or could you pray confidently the way God has instructed us according to what he's promised us? God has actually chosen to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his promises which he has made and which he alone can fulfill Think about what kind of dependent attitude that puts us upon God as we seek answers to what only he can do in us. God answers prayer that reflects a confidence in his promises which are yet fulfilled. So I'm exhorted as a pastor and you're exhorted as a people if we're to make application of the truths of this book, application that results not just in better lives but application that results in perfect lives. We have to pray that God will do that work and bring it about and make it happen even though and especially because God has promised that he would. It's a very similar idea behind what the Lord taught us to pray when in Matthew 6 he said to pray your kingdom come. Well, isn't the kingdom coming guaranteed? Of course, so pray for it to come. 
He says to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is it done in heaven? Perfectly, completely. Pray that it's done on earth that way. Well, isn't that a guarantee when he returns, he will make his will done on earth perfectly? Pray for it. Ask God to do it. It's a prayer not only for present application, but final appropriation of truth, completion. So this is a prayer. Learn to pray this way. We, we said at the beginning of the year when we talked through the subject of prayer, it's good to take some of the prayers of the Apostle Paul like you find in his letters, like we find right here, and use them as the basis to intercede specifically for people in the church. Well, here's one. This is a way you can pray. Now, I want to give you another note about this before we dive into the details of the prayer. Just another note. It is a prayer, but it's also a summary. Paul summarizes the entire book in one verse. Now, I want you to remember, in one verse at the beginning of this book, he outlined and introduced the major themes and priorities of the book. Do you remember that? Chapter 1, verse 3, if you were not with us, you could turn back there and look at it. Chapter 1, verse 3 is an outline, as it were, of the entirety of the book of 1 Thessalonians. When Paul says that he had given thanks to God for all of them, making mention of them in his prayers, constantly bearing in mind what? Three things. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. The work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope, this entire book has been about these three themes. And here he concludes at the end of the book in a similar way, but he uses different terms that actually reflect the application of these three truths. Go back to chapter 5, verse 23, and look with me at a few key words. Notice the heart of this prayer. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. That's the, the key verb, sanctify you. It's a word that means to separate you for the purposes of God. Those purposes being dedicated to him. There are purposes that are holy, that reflect his standards. May God set you aside as reflecting his own purposes and standards as holy. Now what's interesting is that that word sanctify was actually a main idea of chapters 4 and 5. The word was actually used in chapter 4, verse 3, that the will of God is your sanctification. Now, here at the end of the book, he's praying again, may God sanctify you. The latter part of this letter focused upon the commands that we should obey that bring about our sanctification, our completion, and our perfection. Notice also in verse 23, We're to be preserved, he's praying that we would be preserved, complete, without blame, with no disqualification, without blame, blameless. That idea was actually found in the first two chapters of this book. The word was actually used in chapter 2, verses 10, and chapter 3, verse 13. He actually plucks two words that summarize some of the main burdens in the two parts of the book. Sanctify, chapters 4 and 5. Blameless, chapters 1 
through 3. Their faith and their commitment to Christ had nothing lacking in it. It was confirmed. It was not found lacking in the way they responded to the gospel and the way they continued to respond to their circumstances. And now he prays that it will be finished, finalized. I pray that God may sanctify you completely and preserve your, you completely in blamelessness. But notice he says he wants that to be done in spirit and soul and body. Now, why does he bring up these three words here? Spirit, soul, and body. It's a triad of personal existence that Paul prays is completed by God in blamelessness and sanctification. But why mention these three parts, spirit, soul, and body? Well, some assume that this is a description of the fundamental makeup of the human person. The human person is made up of three parts, spirit, soul, and body. And there's a great debate on whether there is the human person is trichotomous or dichotomous, three parts or two parts, internal, external, or three parts, spirit, soul, body. And some say, well, this is a classic text that says that it's three parts that we have a spirit, soul, and body. The reality is I don't think Paul is having that conversation here. I don't think that's his argument. I don't think that's even in his mind. He's actually summarizing the book. Why does he pick three parts so that they would correspond with the, the triad of Christian graces that he introduced at the beginning, faith, love, and hope. So in completing the book, he chooses these three corresponding terms to demonstrate what a complete Christian life looks like. It's complete in every possible way, spirit, soul, body, in both faith, love, and hope. How do we see that connection? Well, you remember the book was built around those three core truths, the work of faith, that is the work that comes from faith, and faith is your confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. The word faith is used about eight times in the book, all in the first three chapters, except for one reference in chapter 5, verse 8, and even that verse is a summary of the three truths again. So faith is a dominant theme in the first three chapters of the book. And who is it that creates faith? And where is faith exhibited? But by the Holy Spirit in the human spirit. And that's the idea here in chapter, five, chapter 1 verse 5. Paul mentions that he preached to them in the Holy Spirit. And they received a joy internally in the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4 verse 8. They received truth which the Holy Spirit had given to the Apostle Paul. It is the Holy Spirit creating an internal work in your spirit that creates faith, trust, belief in Christ. So essentially what Paul is praying is that your faith is absolutely completed internally in your spirit by the work of the Holy Spirit. The phrase, the labor of love that predominated chapter 4 verse 3 down to verse 12 that idea that labor that comes from love the emphasis there in chapter 4 is found in this term soul 
This word soul, suke, here is used one other time in this book in chapter 2, verse 8, where it's translated by the New American Standard Version as lives. It's not talking about some distinction between the spirit and the soul and the inner person. It's talking about your life as a whole. What God does with faith, he does by the Holy Spirit in your spirit, but your life is an expression of love and devotion to other people. When Paul talks about love in this letter, he's not talking about love to God primarily. He's talking about the horizontal aspect of how we love one another in connection with each other. That is the labor of love that is the expression of your whole life or your whole soul, your being. That phrase, the steadfastness of hope that we saw in the beginning of the book, What is hope always connected to? The second coming of Christ. Hope was the predominant theme from chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5 and verse 11, that all described the second coming of Christ. And what are all of the events that are surrounding the second coming of Christ kicked off by? Resurrection. Resurrection of what? Our bodies. Hope is connected to the final resurrection of our bodies. What is Paul praying for? He's been urging that you express faith, love, and hope. And at the end of the book, he's praying that all of it is brought to completion, that your spirit that expresses faith, your life that shows love, your body that will actually be resurrected in hope will be absolutely completed. That's why he brings up these terms. It's a summary to the content of the whole book. In essence, you could look at this and say Paul could take everything that he has taught in this book line by line and use it as a prayer guide to pray for the people in the church in Thessalonica. You ever thought of doing that? As you're reading through a book of the New Testament or reading through a book of the Bible, that you're actually using those lines and those phrases to pray for people in our congregation, to work through our directory of members and pray through an entire book of the New Testament that way and pray that God would accomplish this in each other. What would happen to us? What would happen among us if we began to pray biblically that way? So your growth group gives you all kinds of prayer requests. And they're very practical. They have to do with personal things in your life or extended family. What if you took a book and you say, well, how would I use this to pray for them? That would be stimulating thinking, wouldn't it? To sit down and say, all right, how does this help me pray for this person and their prayer requests? It might reorient the way you pray for someone. It might actually freshen up the way you pray for someone because you're using words and language perhaps that you'd not thought about. And are you praying in such a way that the saints are actually perfected? In everything that God urges us to be perfected in, faith, love, and hope, Spirit, soul, and body. So this is a prayer, and it's a prayer that encompasses a summary of the whole of the book. Now, what is it that we're to pray for with complete confidence in God? Let me just outline this for you quickly. It's, it's, 
very simple for us to follow. What do we pray for with complete confidence in God? Well, there's really two items to pray for. One, pray for complete sanctification. Pray for complete sanctification. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And when we pray for this, what are we to have in mind? When we think of what complete sanctification looks like, what are we to think so that our prayers are informed correctly? I want you to see a few nuances of this phrase that will help us to understand what complete sanctification consists of so that we pray for it biblically. And I'll try to show you how this might fit into praying practically for one another. I want you to notice the very first word of verse 23. In the New American Standard, it says now. In the Greek, it's two words, but now, meaning this. But now, those, those two small particles are a connection to what precedes. What he's praying for is connected to what he has already exhorted. He never divorces his prayer from what he has encouraged people to do. He's praying for them to complete what he's called them to do. And so I learned from this that our completion and our sanctification is actually connected to obeying the commands of God. But now, I've told you these commands from verse 12 to 22. It was a rapid fire giving of a series of commands. And now with that in mind, may God completely sanctify you. As you are obeying these commands, may God sanctify you completely. So when you appreciate those who lead you and you're patient with each other, showing goodness to everyone, rejoicing always, praying unceasingly, showing continual gratitude, living in biblical discernment, wouldn't you say if you lived that way all the time, you'd live complete? Sure you would. I mean, rejoice always. You there yet? Reach that one yet? Gratitude in everything. No grumbling this week? No, there's room for growth, correct? I saw some elbows thrown there. No, there's room to pray, but you're praying in accord with what has been commanded. What God does in his grace is as we obey his word, he infuses obedience with grace that completes us. You cannot be sanctified apart from obedience. He prays in accord with what he has commanded. Do you pray this way? Do you pray that people will be completed, that you will be completed by keeping God's word? There's no separation to holiness without obedience to holy commands. In connection with obeying what God has commanded, we pray for complete sanctification. Now, I want you to also notice something. It's not just your completion being connected to the commands of God, but notice also that your completion, your sanctification, is centered upon God's very nature. It's centered upon God's nature, and this is so vital. 
He says, may the God of peace. In light of everything that I've commanded you, may the God of peace sanctify you. Not just a peaceful God, but the God who is peace. The God who establishes peace. What does that mean? There is no sanctification before God unless there is first peace with God. God has been offended by our sinfulness. God is our enemy because of our own sin. Our disobedience makes us the enemies of God. Who established peace? Did you? Did you strike that ground of peace? Did you do a good work to create peace with God? No. God has done this work. Think about this. If my sanctification is connected to my obedience, I could tend towards despair because I constantly see a lack of obedience, right? I can be constantly frustrated with what I don't see. I need to pair that with who God is. And he is the God who has actually established peace. How do I pray with confidence that God will completely sanctify me? Remind myself, God has established peace with me. And how has he done that? I want you to turn back just for a moment if you want to follow along. And just read Romans 5 with me for a moment. Such a beautiful passage that talks about the peace of God established through what he has done in his love in reconciling us through Jesus. Romans 5, listen to this in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, what does that mean? Justification simply means you've been accepted by God. You've been accepted by God. What causes you to be accepted by God? Faith, that is confidence in Jesus. Having been justified by faith, what do we have now? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, what does that mean? When we were disobedient, when we were incapable of reconciling ourselves to God, we were helpless. (coughs) Pardon me. (coughs) At the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When did he show us peace? When we were enemies. Verse 7. One will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man. Someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What made God the God of peace? 
He reconciled us. That's so fascinating. We created enmity with God. He's blameless. We are to blame. If anybody had any work to do to make up for the debt, it would have been us. And yet he did everything necessary to bring us back to him, to reconcile us to himself. He did that. So yes, you're praying for complete sanctification that comes through your obeying the word of God because God is now at peace with you. You never obey to gain peace with God. You always obey because you are at peace with God. Does that make sense? That has to be the motive for why you trust him. That is the fuel that causes you to be sanctified. So what is the sin that you're struggling with? What is the sin that embarrasses you? What is the sin that causes you such despair? God has reconciled you to himself so that based on that peace with him, you can obey and find the kind of grace through that obedience that will make you complete. He does it all. Pray for him to do it practically in us. That makes God the God of peace and the means of our sanctification. Well, that should cause us to fall on our faces before God, to imagine that we have any hope of any peaceful eternity with God because of what he has done. The only reason we have peace and hope is because of what he has accomplished. So may the God of peace, based on all these things we're called to do, may the God who is at peace with us sanctify you entirely. The word entirely means through and through. You could read this way. May God, because he is peace, set you apart for his purposes in every conceivable way and manner through and through with no portion of your life untouched by his thorough sanctifying work. When was the last time you spent time praying for another brother or sister, for a family member like that and for that? What would he accomplish among us? What would we look like if we prayed consistently for each other this way? For these things. What would our expectations be? Pray for complete sanctification. Secondly, pray for complete security. They are related. Sanctification is your finality, security, really is, is found in that there's nothing that can then separate you from this. Pray for complete security. It's the second half of the prayer that has to do with our security before God. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're praying for something already guaranteed. He's already promised that we would be conformed to the image of his son. He has already guaranteed that we would be with him in glory. 
our security is secure. But pray for it. Pray for it to be seen. Here we're praying that God would completely keep, preserve, and secure you in every conceivable way, in every aspect of your life. So remember what we just said about spirit, soul, and body. They reflect the application of faith, love, and hope. Faith in the spirit, the labor of love, expending our lives for each other, the steadfastness of hope, the ultimate resurrection of our bodies. Paul is praying that we will live out these truths with all of our being, without blame, no disqualification, without quitting, That's how we pray for each other, that God would bring full, complete security to us that we won't reach the end and be disqualified, but we're blameless, without fault. It's as if God is asking us to expend all of our efforts to live in this kind of security. Why would he do that? Why would he ask us to expend all of this effort to live like this? Think of what will happen in heaven. What will we never hear in heaven? We'll never hear in heaven the shouts of prideful boasting from people who have accomplished something on their own. What we'll hear in heaven all of the time is complete praise, complete gratitude, of God who has done so much in us. Eternity will resound with the praises of a people who found their total dependence on God to be their highest satisfaction in life. Our completion, our security is found in the finality of our faith, our love, our hope applied in our spirit, our lives, and our resurrected bodies. When will that happen? When will you realize full security? Now, I know that theologians differentiate between the ideas of assurance and security. Security is a settled fact. It doesn't move. Assurance is something we feel oftentimes, and it tends to go up and down. And I know that when we obey the word, we feel more assured. When we're not obeying, we feel less assured. But when, when is it that we're going to live in complete security, never wavering in assurance about that security? Well, Paul says here when that's going to happen. In the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the end is ushered in, when the saints are caught up to be with the Lord in the air and they're presented to by Christ to the Father, then they'll be completed and made ready for the final descent to be with Christ on the earth and rule in the kingdom that ultimately honors and exalts the Father through Christ forever. Now, why does he do this? If you think about the return of Jesus in regard to your security, how does that help us? How does that help us in feeling secure? Well, if you would concentrate on the coming of Christ in regard to your security, it would breed an expectation about your future. I want you to think of that for a moment. It breeds an expectation of your future. Is your future secure? 
Yes. Many of you have commented who were here yesterday, and it was so great to see so many of you here yesterday at the funeral service for Kevin. You commented on how, how encouraged you were. That's an odd thing to say at a funeral, isn't it? Well, not if you're a Christian, because where is our hope? It's not in one who's passed and the finality of death. We keep thinking about this is just a, a minor stopping point on the way toward eternity. And our hearts and minds were flooded with that reality. Because you concentrate on the future coming of Christ, it breeds an expectation of security about your future. When your future, and you know that your future is absolutely secure, what does that do for you in the present? How can you have confidence then to obey with hope and faith? Because you know the future is secure. But I want to give you another implication from this. It doesn't just help us ground our expectations about the future. It also grounds our expectations for the present. Because I find all of us struggle with the fact that we're not perfect now and we get frustrated with it, don't we? In fact, you will see that there's progress and you find yourself making progress. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to sit down with someone to say, you know, I've had this habit of sin that I've been battling with for so many years and it felt like for, for many years I've overcome it and it just wasn't really an issue in my life anymore. And then all of a sudden from nowhere it just shows up and I gave into it. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Now I would say if someone fell into that sin and walked away from the faith and said, listen, I, I have no concern about this. I'm going to dive into my sin and love my sin. I would say, well, I don't have any hope that you are a Christian. You should repent. But when you're struggling with it and you're battling with it, it shouldn't create despair. When are you going to be perfected? What are your expectations for right now? Absolute perfection so that if you don't see it, you don't have hope? No, your perfection is grounded in eternity. The battle with sin ends when the Lord returns, but not until then. It rages. It's difficult. It's challenging to us constantly. So the coming of Christ says the future is secure, but it is the future. I can't expect that the future has to be right now. I have every ability to live faithfully now by God's grace. But has, have you ever seen God use your failures as a means to create deeper dependence on, you, on him? Of course. So he even uses our failures in our sanctification yearning for the future to come. I think every person who's been trying to live out the Christian faith feels that, sees that burden. How do I know this is all going to happen, though? 
I'm praying for that. I want that. I believe the Lord will come. How do I know it's going to happen? Look how Paul ends in verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you. The word call is the word that calls you into salvation. The one who called you to become a Christian is faithful to you. He doesn't call you into something he will not sustain you in. He calls you into something he will walk with you through constantly. Faithful is he who calls you and he also, he also will bring it to pass. Your security is as secure as God is faithful. If you can find God unfaithful, you then are not secure. If God is faithful, you are secure. He is faithful, and literally the text just says, he will do it. He will do it. He will do it. What will he do? He will do the work in us that causes us to obey the word infused with his grace that sanctifies us and brings us into his presence complete in faith, love, and hope in spirit, in soul, in body, complete. He will do it. Now, you either believe that and trust in it and read the word to infuse your heart and your soul with greater understanding of the faithfulness of God. I mean, every time I read through the Old Testament, that's one of the reasons I love reading through the Old Testament all year long, is because it's just a constant rehearsal that God is faithful to fulfill what he has promised. And how can you not read the book of Genesis and all the failures of all those characters and not see that God is still faithful to what he promised? He doesn't let anyone dissuade him from his faithfulness to keep the promise. He's faithful. And if I have all of that history and trajectory, and I can even look in my own life and I can see glimpses and some of the stones of remembrance in my own life of his own faithfulness, I look back and I keep saying yes, then that means that what he's promised to come in the future, we have hope in that. We trust in that. If he did it all explicitly, just as he said in the past, why would I expect him to do anything different? Everything he says he will do, he will do. He will do it. And it's him that does it. Not me, not my efforts. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. It's the word that just means complete. He will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. What he has started among us, he says, I'll finish. There's nothing to be worried about. Nothing to be worried about. This is how we apply the message of 1 Thessalonians. As we finish the book, we need to remember what it's all about and pray that God will accomplish every one of the truths in it. Is this how you pray? Is this how you pray for your own growth, your own sanctification in Jesus? 
Do you pray with this kind of confidence? Would you even say you pray for people to be sanctified? Is that a regular prayer request? And you say, well, I'm praying for people to be healed of illness and I'm praying for them to get along with their neighbors. Well, well, to what end? In what way? In a God-centered way? Reconciliation with your neighbors? Healing over illness? Do you pray for those things so that hearts rejoice in God? That's sanctification. Do you pray that reconciliation takes place so that the gospel could be seen? Well, that's sanctification. Are you praying that you could have good relationships with people in your workplace so that you could present the word of God and let them see the clarity of Christ in your life? That's sanctification. If I'm just praying for an easier life in the here and now, that's not what God has in mind for sanctification. So how are you praying for sanctification? This is why we hand out the membership directory that is always out of date because so many people are joining the church. This is why we hand it out. We don't hand it out uh, just so that you can know who's who. We hope that happens. But I hope that every, every person who has one of those directory fills it full. Every name has beside it prayer requests that have Bible verses attached to them. Because you're taking God's word and you're actually praying these truths right next to their names. It wouldn't take a lot if you could take one page per day and just those people. And you don't have to spend 10 minutes per name. You don't have to go over and over and over. And you don't have to have an introduction and a body and a conclusion to your prayer for every person. You can just take the text and pray it for this person and jot it down and then watch what happens on the Lord's day when you come in here and you've been praying for these faces and these people and these names in this way and you start hearing what God is doing in their life and you encounter the tragedies and you experience the victories with them what happens then to the fellowship of the church when we pray for this kind of sanctification to take place What happens when the Lord decides that someone who's here on a Sunday morning goes home to be with him on a Sunday evening and isn't with us next week? What happens to us when we gather for that brother's funeral? We're praying for each other to have hope in God and trust in God. It's a sanctifying thing among us. This is how we fuel a right kind of fellowship, is to pray with this kind of completion in mind, complete confidence. Are your prayers informed this way? I want you to think about how to do that in this next week. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, it'd be my encouragement to you that you consider just exactly what do you have to hope in. And why is your life filled with such discouragement and despair? Because you don't have this hope of completion. You don't have it. It doesn't fuel you. But it could. It could. Let's pray together. Father, we are praying for 
you to do a work among us which you alone can do, that is to make us complete in Christ. Help us, our Father, to have these expectations of you. That no matter what we're experiencing in life, we know that you're at work to bring about this final work of sanctification, of made holy in your presence, to set us apart for your own purposes. Lord, I pray for those in the room this morning who are outside of Christ and are living a life outside of Christ. I pray you'd bring a deep conviction to their heart of their need, the emptiness of their life that could be filled with the fullness of peace with you because of Jesus Christ and what he has done, how he's given his life as a sacrifice so that there's no longer enmity but total peace with you. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus by these truths and help us to apply them well. May it inform and infuse our prayer life. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to taste the tangible results of your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.